When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. What makes the Carnival Cruise fun? A picture-perfect beach day in Cozumel or a tropical adventure to Mayan ruins with snorkel excursion for good measure. A delectable surf and turf at sea topped off with craft cocktails at Alchemy Bar. Now, get some Z's. You never know what tomorrow will bring. Why? Because no one does fun like Carnival. Carnival. Choose fun. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama. Coney Island is back. After being closed for all of 2020 due to the pandemic, the attractions, the rides, and the hot dog stands have finally reopened. And we want to encourage everybody to go out and have a little fun for themselves. So for this episode, we are re-releasing a very special version of our 2018 show called Landmarks of Coney Island. Special because this is an extended version of that show. An extended remix, if you will, featuring the tales of two more landmarks which were left out of the original show. And this episode is dedicated to the Wonder Wheel, which was to celebrate its 100th year of operation last year. So go show them some love this year. And please enjoy these landmarks of Coney Island. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We are doing a remote recording, a remote location today for a very special show. A celebration of all things Coney Island, the food, the fun, and most importantly, the history. Now, Coney Island's story goes all the way back to the Dutch days. Even Henry Hudson docked his boat near Coney Island shores. But today, we are not telling that story. No, 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 no. No, we're not telling a chronological history of Coney Island. We have a couple shows in our back catalog that do the trick for that. In a way, this is a tribute to one specific place in Coney Island, the Coney Island Boardwalk, which was just bestowed the honor of scenic landmark by the Landmark Preservation Commission. That's right, like just now, like, yeah. this, this month it's in, exciting. In, in May of 2018. So we are spending the day in Coney Island having fun with our recording equipment, running around and visiting most of the official landmarks here on Coney Island, from the rides to historic buildings. The places that we'll be going to today are top attractions really from like the 1920s and 30s that are still around today, largely because they've been granted that landmark status. And yes, along the way, we'll probably sit down and enjoy a grilled Frankfurter or two. <laughs> yes. Those haven't been landmarked. No, no, neither has the unofficial mayor of Coney Island, Dick Ziggin, who we'll be talking about later on the show. Very importantly, yes. But perhaps our listeners might want to know where we're recording right now, because there's a, an interesting environment going on around us. Right. We are in the Coney Island Stillwell Avenue subway station. Now, we decided to start here because it was really the subway's arrival in 1919 
uh, that changed the course of Coney Island's history. Tom, in fact, do you know that this station is one of the largest elevated train stations in the world, and it opened 99 years ago to this day, today, on May 29th, 1919. Uh, it consolidated most of the elevated train lines that led into Coney Island, the Sea Beach Line, the BRT West Line, the Brighton Line, and then the following year in 1920, the Culver Line. And then they actually lowered the price of, of the train to Coney Island. So this had a huge effect on Coney Island. So many of the things that we'll be visiting are uniquely influenced by this train station. Because it was at that point in 1920 when Coney Island became a nickel empire. It became reachable by anybody in the city for just five cents. Well, Tom, I think we have a whole slate of activities for today's show. So why don't we head on out and have some fun? So fasten your seatbelts and keep your arms and legs inside the moving cars as we ride the landmarks of Coney Island. Okay, Greg, well, you have brought us up to the boardwalk on a bright, sunny Tuesday afternoon. One of my favorite places in New York City. We are looking out. Behind us, actually, is the beach and the Atlantic Ocean. But in front of us, we're looking at all of the great rides and landmarks, the Cyclone, the Wonder Wheel. Uh, There's even Nathan's on the boardwalk, Ruby's, all of which uh, we'll be revisiting on this show. But, of course, we'd like to start with this situation. So perhaps Mm -hmm. you could situate us a little bit as to Coney Island and also as to today's show. Yeah. Coney Island refers to a specific neighborhood, Mm -hmm. actually, in southern Brooklyn. Sandwiched on either side, there's a gated community over there on the west at Seagate. And on the east, there are the neighborhoods of Brighton Beach and Manhattan Beach. Okay. But all of that was known as Coney Island back in the day? Yes. All of that was Coney Island. And it's actually an island. And was, yes, back then, actually an island. It's been filled in with landfill by the mid-19th century. Today, it's a peninsula. It's been seen as a recreational destination since the 1870s. Breathtaking beaches that have drawn people here. Today's Coney Island is a mere reflection of the past. The amusement area used to be much larger, more bustling. So when was the actual, like, golden age of Coney Island? When was this place bustling with amusement parks? I'm sure many people have their own favorite golden era, old timers, but it was really between 1880 and 1940 when it was the largest amusement district in the world. Now, today we'll be visiting places that are contained in a few defined amusement parks. But back in the heyday, there were actually several famous amusement parks out here. Can you name some of them, Tom? Well, I believe that there was Steeplechase Park. Yes. A little bit farther down near today's parachute jump. Yeah, and actually on the, on the, on the site of the Cyclones minor league baseball field. Okay. Yes. And then there was also a place called Luna Park. Uh-huh. Which is very the, the, famous. Yes, the name still lives on in another park that shares that name today. And then there was also Dreamland. Yes, perhaps my favorite, but there's nothing that's around from Dreamland anymore, and and the aquarium sits on the site of old Dreamland. So you mentioned that these were amusement parks on one side of today's boardwalk, and they all also had piers that stuck out into the ocean. Yes, in fact, Steeplechase Pier is still there today. It's right in front of the old parachute jump there. 
the district lost some of its prominence in the 1950s and 60s, and the city soon leveled many of the amusement areas thanks to Robert Moses's urban renewal program. Moses, who took control of the whole area in 1938, but it would take him decades to really get his way. <laughs> yes. And so there's a little bit of his fingerprint still here. The places that we are visiting and talking about today are the real survivors, the physical survivors that have been here for many, many decades. In fact, we are standing upon one of the most famous survivors of all. Yes, the boardwalk, which was just recently landmarked, having opened almost 95 years to the day. It opened on May 15th, 1923. Wow. 95 years ago, wow. Mm -hmm. How does a boardwalk actually officially open? Well, plank by plank. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, we have to remember that because there were those competing amusement parks, those parks and their peers really controlled access to the beach. So they were cashing in not just on the rides that they were offering or their concessions, but they were cashing in on the ability to change into your swimsuit in their bathing houses and access their beaches. They were ostensibly private beaches uh, with very restricted access. There mm -hmm. wasn't any kind of walk or promenade like there is today. It's kind of hard to believe that. Yeah. You would walk back on Surf Avenue. You'd walk down all kinds of little alleyways that were crammed with attractions. Hmm. There were other competing amusement parks, not just the ones we were talking about, but others that kind of offered some access to the water. Everybody was trying to make money on you when you were out here, yeah. and that included on your access to the beach. Well, it sounded very chaotic. I can't imagine just like roads leading right to, you know, to the sand. And as Coney Island became much more popular at the turn of the century, and as millions of people started coming out every week... The city really knew that something had to be done to, to better open up the, the beach to the general public. Mm -hmm. So there were plans to build a, a boardwalk that would kind of give the public access to the beach all the way back in the 19-teens. And this wound its way through the courts. In 1915, the state Supreme Court actually ruled that the beach belonged to the city. And the, and the city wanted to build a boardwalk. So World War I kind of stalled things. But after the war, uh, the Brooklyn Borough president, a man named Edward Regelman, pushes forward. And he was even threatening to chop up the private bathhouses that got in his way. Because <laughs> Steeplechase, for example, said they weren't going to move their bathhouse. They weren't going to give wow, public access. Uh -huh. So up until 1920, mm -hmm. pretty much, you couldn't just go on to every beach. You had to pay an admission. Hard to believe, and yeah. that would change in 1923 when the first area of the boardwalk opened. That was a stretch going from Ocean Parkway, just east of today's aquarium, all the way down to West 37th Street. Really, this entire stretch that we're looking at here today. Later, under Robert Moses, he would actually extend it eastward up to where it hits Manhattan Beach by 1941. Well, that seems uncharacteristic of Robert Moses, I guess. <laughs> well, Good. He, was, he was really horrified by what he saw as the sort of the terrible cramped conditions on the beach. Oh. They were also, as part of the boardwalk construction, they were extending the beach into the water as well. So they were adding beach and adding public access to the beach. You know, I mean, I, I love the boardwalk. I, I am a little confused about how you can landmark such a thing because it's the ground. It's boards that are, you know, frequently replaced when they get old or, or beaten up. So, right. But how does that merit a landmark status? Well, actually, it's because of those boards that were being replaced that prompted this, I believe. 
because recently, as the boardwalk was needing repairs, sometimes it would be repaired with slabs of concrete. Sometimes it was fake-looking wood. So preservationists were becoming upset by what they saw as sloppy repairs to the boardwalk. And this was a fight undertaken by several, including city council member Mark Traeger. And they succeeded, and this year on May 15th, 2018, it became a New York City scenic landmark. Here's the thing. This is not just a boardwalk. This is probably New York's largest stage. Because when you (laughs) come out here, there are people performing, and everyone's in a kind of performative state anyway, in their their finest bikinis, and and especially around Mermaid Parade time, uh, it is the flashiest place perhaps in all of America. Sure. You see the entire city or the entire world on display here. And that's why I think it also merits a cultural landmark status, because it's truly a mixing and because of its uh, role in democratizing access to Mm -hmm. the beach. So that is our first landmark, and we are very much planted on land. (laughs) But for our next destination, Tom, I mean, we are staring right at it. The grand wheel that is Mm. in front of us right now, it is drawing me. That wheel of wonders. (laughs) Yes. Why don't we make that our second destination? Let's head over there right now. Behold, Tom, the Wonder Wheel. Yes, we're walking toward it through Dino's Wonder Wheel Park. Uh, there are kitty rides to the left and right of us, a yep. tilt-a-whirl. <laughs> but the oldest part and the star of the show is, of course, not a Ferris wheel. No, no. The wondrous wheel known as the Wonder Wheel, which opened in 1920, so it has nearly 100 years of glorious history. So tell me, how did it wind up here? Oh, well... Instead of just talking about it standing here, Mm -hmm. why don't we talk about it riding the wheel itself? I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) Let's go. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stepping into the red car. Do you want to be in the front? You are in the front. I'll be in the back. Oh, boy. Okay, well, Greg and I have just boarded a red car. (laughs) Yeah, so we are riding one of America's oldest operating pleasure wheels. We may call it also a a Ferris wheel if you want. The 150 feet tall, there are 24 passenger cars. But, of course, as we're about to see, only eight of the cars are fixed. The other 16 move on tracks. You mean some of these cars actually move while they're turning around? Yes, it was originally called the dip to dip, and we're about to dip here in a second. This is why this is called an eccentric wheel or an eccentric Ferris wheel. It's a Ferris wheel that is tricked out to do different kinds of things. Oh, my God. Well, we are now almost at the top. <laughs> we're, we're above the cyclone. We're higher than yeah. the cyclone. And we're turning almost at the very top. Though, Greg, I don't know what you're talking about, about well, that, the swing. Because it seems like it's been pretty... St- uh, oh, look. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay, wait, wait. We, we are swinging back and forth. Yes. <laughs> as if we're, like, in a birdcage being <laughs> now, swung from above. Now, Tom, the very first Ferris wheel uh-huh. opened in 1893 at the World's Fair in Chicago. 
named for the inventor George Washington Gale Ferris. This wheel that Didn't we're... you do a whole podcast on this? Yes, that was the first episode of my spinoff, The First. Okay. So everyone should check that out for some real deep dive into Ferris wheel history. Well, this wheel was built... It started. They started building it 100 years ago in 1918 and opened for business in 1920. It made its debut on Memorial Day, oh. May 30th, 1920. Excuse me, we're just circling around. We're now... We've touched the ground. Do you think they're going to let us off this thing? No, no, we're going around again. The Wonder Wheel is famous for its durability. There is... Thankfully. I mean, they keep this thing so well maintained. There's never been an accident in the 98 years that it's been open. And with all that swinging. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all the weathering that you imagine that it goes through. They keep a regular paint job on it, so it keeps it nice Ah, and new. Okay. Okay, that is the swing. In fact, Tom, it famously stopped once. So imagine being in this car uh-huh. on July 13th, 1977, during the great New York City blackout. Oh. So just imagine all of this darkness out there, looking out into the blackness and then riding the Wonder Wheel. And we talked about that in our blackout show. People had to to spin the wheel around by hand. Well, riders, yeah, riders were brought down safely because the owners had to hand crank. Ugh. The original owners, the brothers who owned it, cranked people down very carefully. 35 years ago, on June of 1983, a restaurateur named Dino Verduras bought the Wonder Wheel, kept it in tip-top shape, and then at the time, also bought another ride, the Spookorama. It's the haunted house oh, right yeah. next to it. Then, bought all the kitty rides around it and developed Dino's Wonder Wheel Park. Now, Dino died in 1994, but it is still family operated. To this day, the Dino Wonder Wheel Park is a, a very refreshing, non-corporate experience. It still has a, that's kind of like family operated feel to it. That's yes, totally it does. fun and authentic. Okay, that is the swing at the top of the wheel. We're back at the top. <laughs> uh, but we're looking, but we will take the opportunity to look down and around Coney Island from up here. It's really amazing and it's incredible to see how much activity is here today, even more than when you and I moved to New York yeah. in 93. Oh, well, so, well, certainly. And I also want you to, to put your mind back into 1920 what we were looking at. This was a much larger... What were we looking at in 1920? (laughs) Well, it was a much larger amusement area. None of this that's surrounding us, except for the the theater over there and one or two other buildings were even here. But there would have been millions and millions of people visiting all of these amusement parks. And so people have had so many different views from these gondolas on the Wonder Wheel that it's really impressive that it's about to hit its century mark. I hope that we can come back out here in two years for the centennial. And we can record a whole show there, maybe just in a stationary car, of just course. Just a stationary, okay. Well, we're about to the bottom of the Wonder Wheel. Uh, can we move on to the next <laughs> to the next amusement? <laughs> well, I mean, since I mentioned the Spookorama, oh. what, say we take a spook, we take a Rama. We, <laughs> we take a Spookorama. We go visit those ghost stories. This is what they call a dark ride, which is a haunted house ride, but it really is just sort of like a little roller coaster with just some like spooks and lighting tricks inside of it. So uh, I don't know if you've ridden this before, Tom. If not, 
why don't we? Uh, why don't we just let's hop on? Uh, but th we should note that this is not landmarked. <laughs> There's nothing landmarked <laughs> about would, Spookorama. That would be a stunning achievement, I think. <laughs> Thank you very much. Man, this brings back memories. Here we go. <laughs> the, the walls have like various murals of spooks and goblins and various specters and ghosts. Yeah, Greg and I are wedged into a little cart. And we're still outside in daylight, yeah, yeah. but we're about we're, to go through we're going it. We've got these wooden doors that have eyes on it. Here we go. Oh. Oh, boy. Oh. Okay, double dark. And it's dark. Okay. All right. You know, I think uh, it's a Tuesday afternoon, and we're the only ones in We're the only ones oh. in the ride. I was like, oh! That was... That was a that skeleton. Was a skeleton. Oh my god, she woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Ah! Okay. Oh my god. Okay, out of the coffin. Oh my gosh, look at all these oh, skeletons. Oh, okay. Oh, 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 oh. That's like sort of a modern ad. Oh, ew. 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 Okay. That's a wolf. That's a wolf. Okay, so... What? Okay. <laughs> That's just silly. What? Okay. There are a lot of unhappy people popping up behind shutters. <laughs> Something else is going to happen. Uh, I'm sorry, sir. Oh. You should get those eyes checked. Okay, we're at the other side. That was exciting. We survived. Survived. You made it through. There's a couple new things in Siren. Yeah. Oh, thank, thank you. Okay, Greg, well, we survived the Spookorama. Oh, barely. <laughs> but now we are walking a kind of midway past, uh, past various games, bumper cars, and we're heading toward what is probably the most famous ride in Coney Island, the Cyclone. Especially if you are a roller coaster aficionado. It's been part of Coney Island since the 1920s, and that's actually what makes it historically significant, is that the, the Cyclone is the only remaining big coaster from this kind of golden age of Coney, from the 1920s. So let's head over there now. Tom, we've wandered over to the Coney Island Cyclone. Can you describe what we're looking at right now? Uh, what we're looking at and hearing is the legendary Cyclone, um, a wooden roller coaster that is painted white and topped with the words Cyclone. Now, as you'll notice, Greg, it is surprisingly compact, you know, because it pulls its trains with three cars up to the top of a hill by a chain, and then it releases those trains, plunging them down 90 feet down the first hill, which we're standing next to and can hear them scream. But then they speed back up eight more hills, up and down, all the while turning onto itself. And those trains are being pulled after that first hill by their own gravitational force. It's a gravitational Ooh. coaster. And they achieve a speed of 60 miles an hour. I mean, it is really old school. Who built it? When was it built? Well, this was built for brothers, Jack and Irving Rosenthal, 
um, who in the 1920s wanted to actually own, they dreamed of owning the world's fastest roller coaster. So they hired an engineer named Harry Baker uh, to construct this, and it opened in 1927. And this was during a kind of roller coaster war happening out here in Coney oh, Island. Yeah. Uh -huh. There had been a number of high-profile uh, coasters that had opened in the 20s, including the Thunderbolt in 1925, the Tornado in 1926, and the Cyclone here in 1927. Now, we could go back to the, you know, the Russian genesis of the roller coaster <laughs> in the 16th century. I don't think we have time for that. I mean, it caught on in Europe. It made its way to the U.S. and even here in Coney Island in the late 19th century. So by the 1920s, there had been a number of roller coasters, you know, throughout this golden period of Steeplechase Park and Dreamland and Luna Park. They all had roller coasters but the first that had opened out here was opened by a man named LaMarcus Thompson in 1884. It was called the Switchback Railway. And in that, 10 people just sat in a car and were pushed to the top of a hill, basically, and let go. Mm -hmm. And they coasted down, and then they had a switchback that allowed them to go on another track back in the other direction. It was pretty simple, um, but things really took off from there. And as you can imagine, in the early 20th century, with rather lax oversight and lax laws, things got actually a little out of control. A bunch of coasters opened with names like Helter Skelter, Drop the Dip, Loop the Loop. But there were many other kinds of coaster-like attractions out here um, that just took people on, like, railway cars through tableau vivants yeah. or through like disaster scenes so you uh -huh. could watch things burn well it became one of the primary forms of amusement out here and it wasn't just doing elaborate turns that would you know like upset your stomach it was usually about the things you were watching the spookorama which we just rode mm -hmm. is kind of a, like a roller coaster yeah kind of like a roller because you're in a car you're being led around on a track and you're watching kind of tableaus <laughs> unfold before Tableau you. Tableau of skeletons. But those are not vivant. <laughs> but the cyclone here opened in that heyday a few years after the Stillwell Avenue train station in 1927. Yes, and the brothers Rosenthal spent $150,000 on its construction, charged 25 cents for a ticket, and within a few weeks of opening had actually earned all of their money back. So if you're into roller coasters, mm -hmm. What is it about the cyclone that sets it apart from other roller coasters around the country? Well, for, for one thing, it has wooden tracks, uh, which kind of gives it a special look, you know, and a special feel and a, a distinctive <laughs> click, you know. And, as, and a special kick if you're riding it. You can also catch a little bit of air, you know, mm -hmm. when you go down those hills in a way that is actually probably not up to code anymore. In, in fact, you could not build this roller coaster as it is today because it's not up to code. Right. But that's all the fun. But it's definitely one of this country's most famous roller coasters. And, you know, it actually has been for a really long time. It's been in popular culture. There have been many legends created around it. Even in the 1940s during World War II, there was an army man named Emilio Franco from West Virginia who couldn't speak because he suffered from hysterophonia, which took away his voice. After riding the cyclone in 1948, he screamed the entire way through and finally, legend has it, was able to speak at the end of the ride. <laughs> and what on earth were his first words? I feel sick. <laughs> I found a reference to it in the Greenville News, a South Carolina newspaper in July of 1948. 
a school trip of students had been asked, you know, what had they found to be the, quote, most outstanding landmark of historical interest during their trip? Was it the Empire State Building? Was it the Washington Monument that they saw in D.C.? No, they said in unison, it was a, <laughs> it was a Coney Island cyclone. And by the 19th, Remarkable. And by the 1960s, kids across the country could buy cyclone play sets with wind-up cars. So this roller coaster actually had become part of the American cultural landscape. By the 1970s, things were not looking so hot for it. It was falling into disrepair. And the owners at the time, uh, Dewey and Jerome Alpert, sold it actually back to the city, who then planned to give it to the aquarium, which is right next door, demolish it and expand the aquarium. Yeah. So that was the plan for a while. And this was... This was happening at a time when so many other parts of Coney Island were disappearing that it actually didn't really seem that surprising. However, there was something about demolishing this ride that really struck a nerve. And there was a whole Save the Cyclone campaign that was launched. And in 1974, the city gave the contract to uh, operate the ride to Astroland, which was another amusement park that had opened just next to it in the and had a kind of 1960s space age theme and they operated it until astroland closed in 2008 and is today is it part of luna park exactly yes it's run by luna park and it was landmarked in july of 1988 and entered into the national register of historic places in 1991. so one of the most famous rides in the world one that people actually from around the world come to set records in including Richard Rodriguez, who in 1977 rode it for 104 hours straight. <laughs> wow. I'll just add, Greg, that the Cyclones um, are now also the namesake of the local minor league baseball team, the yeah. Brooklyn Cyclones. They play at nearby MCU Park, which is, of course, on the site of Old Steeplechase Park and right next to the parachute jump. So there are Cyclones on either side of Coney Island. <laughs> you can't escape them. Tom, just seeing all these people go up and down and being whipped about has worked up quite an appetite here. Not to mention a thirst. Yes. So why don't we get uh, a little food and drink at the most famous place in Coney Island to get a hot dog. Nathan's Famous. We'll go to Nathan's after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own... 
trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to traveltexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Oh, well, Greg and I have sought refuge <laughs> in the safe harbor that is yes. Nathan's Famous. Is there anywhere that I feel more at peace than in this outdoor dining parking lot? Or is there any place you feel more at peace than behind a plate of <laughs> crinkled fries? Crinkled fries and, of course, the signature hot dogs and a couple beers here. You not know, too early. Not too early, but it's uh, an excuse to give a little history of Nathan's, which is a very key component of life here on Coney Island. We are on the original spot of Nathan's Famous, which opened here in 1916 on the corner of Surf and Stillwell Avenues, and Caddy Corner from the subway station that we just entered earlier in the show. Right, they have a side seating area, and we are mm-hmm. underneath an umbrella at a <laughs> cement table. <laughs> Nothing more pleasant as I stare up at those beautiful neon signs. Nathan's is named for Nathan Handworker, an Eastern European Jewish immigrant who got started working out here on Coney Island in the late 19th century, working for the king of Coney Island, they called him, Charles Feltman. And Feltman, why does the name Feltman ring a bell? Well, as legend has it, as they say, Feltzman invented the hot dog out here, although its origins come from a n- numerous different places, honestly. It is, after all, a piece of sausage on bread. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but by the 1910s, Feltman's, that the beer garden, was charging 10 cents for his hot dogs. 10 cents, which sounds pretty cheap. It's, it's about $2.60 today. But still, that's a lot of money back then. Nathan... Handworker left Feltman's to start his own operation here at this very corner. His idea was to sell them at half price for five cents. So he was selling them for a nickel right here, basically across the street from where just a few years later the subway would open, yes. offering people nickel fares to <laughs> yes. and from Manhattan. That was part of the reasons that Nathan became so 
famous, if you will, because with the terminal opening in 1919, people could stream out and on their way back homes, and they were passing Nathan's. And they already had nickels in their pocket. (laughs) That's true. Nathan's is so iconic in Coney Island history that people assume that he invented the hot dog, not Feltman's. Today, people all over the world know Nathan's Famous. It's been franchised. Products are sold in stores. More dramatically, of course... Tom, I noticed that you ate your hot dog rather slowly. You would not be a slowly. good you would not be a good athlete for Nathan's hot dog eating contest, which has been held here, they say from the very beginning, although it was a more formulated contest by and the nineteen seventies. Dare I ask, do you happen to know the current reigning champion, how many he's been able to to snarf down? It's Joey Chestnut, but I'm not sure how many dozens of hot dogs he ate to attain his crown. Joey Chestnut actually somehow ate 72 Nathan's hot dogs in 10 minutes. He has, you know, a whole strategy that involves dunking them in water and, you know, the whole thing, which really kind of gives me heartburn. I mean, that was a really delicious single hot dog I just ate. Yeah, it's more than just an average hot dog, isn't it? Indeed. The the secret ingredient is a spice mix that was reportedly cooked up by Nathan's wife, Ida, or rather it was a family recipe that was passed down. And if you were just to eat the single hot dog, just the hot dog itself. As I did. Um, oh, you mean without any with, Without anything. You might notice one of its most prominent ingredients. It has a slight garlic overtone. Oh. It's a garlic sausage. Yes. But who eats just a hot dog without engulfing it in at least 20 different toppings? Today, a Nathan's hot dog costs $4.50. So I guess about four times that original <laughs> price. Look, Coney Island is a very different place. <laughs> so are <to> health regulations. <laughs> but my favorite story of Nathan's will always be that time in 1954, that time that a dead whale was washed ashore, they carted it up from the water, and displayed it right here next to Nathan's. Wait, they, th- they thought that displaying a dead whale, a beached whale, would actually draw people to buy hot dogs? Yeah, I mean, they detracted people uh, at and first. Flies. And flies. Well, at first, but unfortunately, the poor whale badly decomposed. The people they were operating this macabre attraction, they like left town and left the de- decomposing animal here right next to Nathan's, which, of course, then drove business away. As rumor has it, they say that a couple mafia guys were then paid to cart off the whale, and then they blew it up with dynamite on the beach. Ah. And that is one of your top five favorite New York history stories. You know, I will tell that story on a dime. I love that story. <laughs> well, well, on a more serious note, having satiated our, our hunger and quenched our thirst, we are now on to meet up with Mr. Coney Island himself, Dick Ziggin, who, along with others, in 1980 formed Coney Island, USA. And he is at the core of many modern traditions here at Coney Island, including the Sideshow by the Sea and the Mermaid Parade. He is, in fact, known as the unofficial mayor of Coney Island. So it's time for us to go to the unofficial city hall of Coney (laughs) Island. Let's head in and speak to the mayor about what Coney Island was like in the late 20th century and about the Renaissance out here at Coney Island. So Greg and I have the great pleasure now of sitting down with Dick Ziggin, the... Permanently uh, unelected. 
<laughs> mayor of Coney Island. <laughs> Unofficial, but, but not unimportant mayor of Coney Island, well, I would thank say. thank you for that. <laughs> and we're sitting in the Coney Island Museum, which is on the second floor of the, the building that was constructed in 1917 as Child's Restaurant. Yes. One of two Coney Island landmarks, which are both called Child's Restaurants. Mm-hmm. We are in the... Not only the older child restaurant, but the oldest of the Coney Island landmarks. And today, it essentially holds a repository of incredible artifacts from all eras of Coney Island history. If people want to get a real insight into what this place was before they go out and enjoy the beach, uh, they should come here. Let's, everything. let's list some artifacts. There's... <laughs> A wicker boardwalk rolling chair from 1923. If you're a car fanatic and you like collecting antique cars, well, we don't have one bumping car. We have three in the room we're sitting in. There's a 1940s Lussy brother. There is a Dodgem from the 1950s and then another Dodgem from the 70s. There's an extensive thermos and uh, collection. <laughs> That's true. And cooler collection. But back there to these cars. Antique, uh, bathing suits, but sure, let's get back you, to the You call cars. them bumping cars. They are bumping cars. Bumping cars. And so bumper car just is a distortion of that? Um, that's probably like an incorrect phrase from New Jersey. Like people who call the funny face, and it is the funny face. In New Jersey, they mistakenly call it Tilly. We're going to leave that one alone. Um, so, so Greg and I have been spending the afternoon running around and looking at landmarks, today's official landmarks of Coney Island. But we wanted to ask you, uh, as you're one of the founders of Coney Island USA, in 1980, um, what the scene was like around here in the 70s or when you were first sure. becoming involved in Coney Island? There was so much more. There were buildings from the heyday of Coney Island still standing, some still in use, some bombed out, burned out, abandoned, and I had a great time trespassing <laughs> and looking at them. A lot of the great generation of Coney Island characters, uh, business owners from major rides, major operations, crazy loony people in their 70s and 80s mm-hmm. um, proved to me when I was a young man that if I spent my life at Coney Island, um, I'd be healthy and nuts. <laughs> and it, it, it's worked correct? out for me, yes. Um, so a lot of what I saw when I was here, which was a lot more infrastructure, a lot more architecture, a lot more iconography on signage, on buildings, on monuments inspired me and was meaningful to me. And then my job as um, a cultural advocate in Coney Island is what I saw disappeared was to create a repository and a representation. So the Coney Island Museum is a serious repository of objects. We are a not-for-profit museum. We are chartered by the state. We're obliged to care for the objects 
in the collection. We just collect funhouse mirrors and bumping cars <laughs> um, rather than uh, oil paintings. Uh, but we are a serious museum of popular culture. In terms of uh, just ritual in the neighborhood, that's why we reinterpret a Coney Island parade and do the mermaid parade. That's why uh, we maintain the format of a traditional circus sideshow, although we change some of the politics and gender attitude because it's the 21st century after all. Oh, yeah, we want to get to both of those things. So I think that's a very intriguing aspect of how history is reinvented with those two things. When I think of Coney Island in the early 80s, when you get, were just getting started, I mean, I think of like, just in terms of pop culture, the Warriors, you know, it, it felt like it, there was a certain abandonment to it. And so I think that what you started to do... Wasn't it wasn't abandoned. Mm-hmm. It was Wild West funky town. It was a Mad Max movie. It never closed and there were a million people here on the 4th of July. It was graffitied. It was gangs. It was bikers. It was broken glass. But it was alive and vibrant and had an energy. Having lived through it, I'll say it was fun, but it's, I'm glad that's history now. And in 1983, then, you started the Mermaid Parade. Right. So we had started the arts organization in 1980. We did our first show, a 12-hour art day called Tricks and Treats at the Wax Museum that went on for 12 hours, October 31st, 1981. And that was with the same energy of uh, the arts that were happening in the East Village and Keith Haring and Club 57 and all of that. That got attention. We had a five-page documentation in the drama review. Wow. Uh, Having accomplished that, that, that you could be an arts organization in Coney Island, then we needed to do something big to make a big name for ourselves, but we didn't have a building. If you came to Coney Island and were looking for the artists, they were hard to find. So we decided to at least one day a year, uh, not a day when uh, something else was really going on. Not July 4th. Not 4th of July. Actually, I was told the one day I couldn't do a parade mm-hmm. was 4th of July. They said, laughed at me. It was too busy that day. And now the Mermaid Parade is as big as the 4th yeah. of July. So we took over the neighborhood one day a year that impressed the neighborhood and impressed funding sources and that raised enough money that we rented a building and became a full-time physical real estate presence in the neighborhood starting 1985. First, the building on the boardwalk where Nathan's on the boardwalk is now. um, So you could have had your freaks before your fries. What's really fascinating that what your mention of the East Village is that, you know, it is true that there's a very specific artistic vision to both the Mermaid Parade and to the sideshow that resembles what I re- remember of the East Village in the 80s and even the 90s. But the East Village is not quite like that anymore. But I think the Mermaid Parade and the, the sideshow by the seashore does kind of maintain that kind of artistic integrity. It's ironic that I've I just turned 65 and I'm old enough that 
everything else that was cool has disappeared and it's finally our moment. (laughs) (laughs) But wait, speaking of the sideshow, when did the sideshow start then? So we opened on the boardwalk in Mm -hmm. 1985 and uh, there had been no sideshow in Coney Island whatsoever for about 20 years. The parades had died out, the sideshows had died out, people asked me if I inherited the sideshow from mm-hmm. my family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my old grandmother passed it down. No, uh, we're educated, smart people with the right attitude and the right ability to fake authenticity. And we uh, put it all together from scratch um, in genuine Coney Island buildings uh, that had gone through a horrible process in the 70s where anything architecturally interesting like a tin ceiling or a marble column is like hidden in sheetrock or a drop ceiling. So we ripped all that out Mm -hmm. and painted beige walls uh, to look uh, amusement park deco is a word we throw around a lot. Very retro. Yep, exactly. And, and were you part of the sideshow? Did you have a performative role? No, you weren't so the barker. You... I've always been the brains behind the scene. And I have two fancy schmancy degrees in theater. I've got an MFA from Yale School of Drama as a playwright. So I've got a background in theater, and I've been the conceiver and director of the sideshow all along. But after years of being harassed and harangued by my own friends and employees and staff, why don't you do anything? Um, I got heavily tattooed. So, you know, even though I'm a professor type, I would look like I belonged here. (laughs) If I could go back to the the Mermaid Parade, which, I mean, I love and have been in a few times um what are the connections between what you envisioned for the mermaid parade and that like the old mardi gras parade that they used to have out here and so if i toot my own horn and this is an opportunity so of course i'm going to argue that i'm a pretty good artist and with all that over education and you know the origins of theater they come from parade. Um, you think about all those things. So um, like a good artist, you realize that good art is often simple-minded and sort of dumb, and it resonates. So um, in a neighborhood where the streets, duh, are named Neptune Avenue, Mermaid <laughs> Avenue, Surf Avenue, I'm reading a very early book, a book about Atlantic City written by Vicki Gold Levy. And there's a lot of similarities, as is obvious, between Atlantic City's history and Coney Island's history. And the origins of the Miss America contest, surprisingly, are a mermaid pageant and these like really hokey floats going down the boardwalk. And all of those rattle around my head. And, and then uh, when I was in college, um, I had a girlfriend from Pasadena who told me about the Doodah Parade, which as far as I'm concerned, was a major inspiration. And perhaps the first ongoing art parade in America. 
So putting all that together, from the very first year, although there were more people in the parade than watching the parade in 1983, <laughs> everything was there from the beginning. So it's not focused on beauty. It's not most beautiful mermaid. It's best mermaid contest. We're encouraging people dressing as mermaids, Neptune's creature of the sea, marching bands, um, antique cars only, um, and even the ribbon-cutting pageant on the beach, which is my favorite part of the Mermaid Parade, is there from the beginning, and it clicked and it worked, and, you know, we immediately figured, well, you know, this is all tongue-in-cheek anyway, so bribe the judges, why not? (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, we'll leave you, but thank you so much for sitting down with us, Dick Ziggin. Thank you, thank you, Jack, it was a pleasure. My honor. You're getting a little extra special peek into more landmarks. In fact, we are recording this standing astride one of the lesser known landmarks of Coney Island, but not if you're a music fan. This is the Old Child's Restaurant on the Coney Island boardwalk. Today, the, named after the elder child? <laughs> the elder child. No, no. The, the former the, child. The, form, the former child's restaurant. Today, it's the Ford Amphitheater, and it's been open since 2016, and they're having a wide array of concerts. Just last year, Tom, I saw the psychedelic furs and violent femmes from this various, various spot, actually. Yeah, it was it was great. It, it makes a, a wonderful venue. Well, it's uh, great that the, the child's restaurant, so child's open in the 1920s and it was in operation until the early 50s 1952 uh, and then it closed down like so many other things you know Coney Island was a change in after it closed in the 50s it did a number of it took a different turn and operated as a candy factory for many decades until it closed down and its future was really in question which is appropriate because childs love their candy (laughs) indeed indeed they do and Child's was, was known as one of the first American early f- restaurant chains. So it's interesting that they opened during this roaring moment in the 20s uh, when Coney Island was just like alive with new <laughs> possibilities, with new roller coasters like the Cyclone, which opened in 27. And of course, as you pointed out on the way over here, you know, was probably open because of the new influx of people on the boardwalk because of the opening yes. of the subway station. But one thing that did not uh, open in the 1920s and actually has a very, very unique and different story is our final landmark of Coney Island. That is the parachute jump. It's distinctive in that it's one of the few amusement rides landmarked in the United States, but it's also a defunct ride. It hasn't actually operated since 1964, or some reports say 68, but probably 64, which is when Fred Trump tore down Steeplechase Park. And so it was around that period. Right, that's part of Coney Island's history that we decided to just leave alone in this episode, <laughs> was that which involved developer Fred Trump. But you're, So you're talking about the parachute jump, which, yes. which is that super tall red iron structure that kind of looks like a ruin just next to Child's Restaurant. Right, so it's 250 feet. It looks like a gigantic metal silo, mm-hmm. but instead of a you know a, a tank on top, it's topped with a circle, a, with a, a circular lattice of metal. The coolest thing, I think, about the parachute jump is that Coney Island, uh-huh. 
is not its original home, which would make it a landmark that's actually like not in its original place. Where was it before it came to Coney? The 1939 World's Fair. Uh, it was called the Colonel James Strong Parachute Jump, and it was a military-themed demonstration ride out at Flushing Meadows Park for the first World's Fair. It was sponsored by Lifesavers Candies, so the oh. tower was actually painted in colorful stripes, like little candies. Like Lifesavers. And I've always wondered how... Uh, the parachute drop yeah, even worked. Did you, I mean, because it looks like we're standing here, we're looking up at it, and I see what looks like the top of parachutes or tops of umbrellas at the very top. Did they hoist you all the way up there? Well, this is how it was. It was a series of gondolas that were evenly spaced around the circle. Okay. And each gondola had a parachute attached to a wire that was then attached to the very top of the tower. Okay? People boarded at the ground level, then the wires were gently pulled up to the very top, then at the very top, it let you go. The parachute was filled with air and you drifted back down. That sounds, that sounds kind of terrifying. Mm-hmm. How long did somebody have to endure that? How, how long did the whole thing go on? Well, the ascent took about a minute, so you were pulled up, it took okay. a minute, but the drop took about 15 seconds. From a 1939 fair guidebook on how this ride operated, quote, 11 gaily colored parachutes operated from the top of a 250-foot tower enable visitors to experience all the thrills of bailing out without the hazard or discomfort. Wow! (laughs) Bailing out of a plane. Each parachute has a double seat suspended from it. When two passengers have taken their places beneath the chute, a cable pulls it to the summit of the tower. An automatic release starts the drop, and the passengers float gently to the ground. Vertical guide wires prevent swaying, and a metal ring keeps the chute open at all times, and shock absorbers eliminate the impact of the landing. One of the most spectacular features of the amusement area, this is also a type of parachute jump similar to that which the armies of the world use in early stages of training from for actual parachute jumping. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that. So it, it had practical uses elsewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, they were, it was even, it was sort of marketed as something that was uh, used by the military. Yeah, huh. well, in 1941, after the fair was over, the Tillyu family, who owned Steeplechase Park, right. bought the parachute jump and then moved it to Steeplechase Park you know, and that was actually something that wasn't unheard of. Many of the attractions from the World's Fair would be purchased and incorporated into amusement parks, not just here on Coney Island, but around the country. All, all over the world, yeah. And I mean, this delighted hundreds of thousands of people yeah. over the year, and it made for one of the more dramatic rides on the Coney Island boardwalk. When did it actually shut down? Because I've only known this as kind of a ruin. Yeah, the park itself closed in 1964. Thanks to Robert There are differing accounts as to when the ride closed. Some say 1968, but I think it was probably before then. Unbelievably, though, this ride as a ruin, as something that was defunct, survived. And how did that happen? How did I imagine that there were people who just wanted to tear it down? I mean, it, it should have been torn down, but there was something about it. It's sheer prominence on the boardwalk. I mean, most of the rides, keep in mind, are kind of set back from the water. This is, like, right up front. and Practically so, on the boardwalk. Yeah, and so it was beloved by millions. It was, it was an aspect that was cr- 
key to Coney Island for many people. And just to be more practical, it was very expensive to tear it down. It held on just long enough until 1977. The city declared it a landmark, and then they rescinded the landmark status because they thought it was not sturdy enough. They thought it was actually going to collapse by that point. Fine, but it didn't collapse. It stayed standing for like another 12 years when it finally, once again, became a landmark in 1987. And thanks to its neighbor, which is the uh, minor league ball field MCU Park, home of the Cyclones, the parachute jump is now in great shape. It's beautifully painted and beautifully lit. Yeah, and so you mentioned it's next to the stadium where the, the Coney Island Cyclone minor league team played today. Does the city uh, have any plans to reopen the parachute jump as a ride? Well, believe it or not, there have been talks for a few decades about reopening it and turning it into another parachute jump that I think that people would still enjoy. There's actually another uh, there's another ride that's similar to it right now in one of the parks that's much smaller. Right. So this would be spectacular. For now, it's a very glorious knick-knack with no real purpose. And it, but it does serve as a great remembrance of the glory days, and certainly it's the most handsome thing on the boardwalk. The Coney Island History Project, according to them, so they are the ultimate expert on whether this can actually be a ride. According to them, quote, Although it's possible that the parachute jump could operate again, the ride's landmark designation would require it to be restored to its original form, a free fall with real chutes. The cost of restoration might prove to be prohibitively expensive, as the ride would require a highly trained and experienced crew to maintain it in the manner that the Till You family did until its closure in 1964. Besides the obvious insurance and liability concerns is another factor to consider. The parachute jump never made money for the Till You's. Part of the reason can be traced to its location. Stiff ocean breezes kept it closed most of the time. Mm. Until these problems can be resolved, the landmark parachute jump will continue in its role as a symbol of Coney Island's survival and resurrection. So it sounds to me like we shouldn't hold our breath. The parachute jump is not going to be reopening anytime soon. They can't do anything about the stiff Coney Island breeze. No, no. And, and it, the it, waivers are going to be, you know, you're going to have to sign off on the dotted line before you get hoisted up to the very top <laughs> and dropped. Yeah, there's, there's so many things going against this kind of like coming back into action that we just need to look at it as sort of a trophy of the past. Hmm. You know, another trophy that actually has more function to it today is Steeplechase Pier, uh, which heads off into the Atlantic Ocean, really from just about the front of the parachute jump. So if you make it out to Coney Island and you walk down to the parachute jump and you see Child's, Child's Restaurant, well, out into the ocean, you'll also be able to walk out onto the Steeplechase Pier. I think it's really interesting to walk out on that because that dates back to the era when all of these big amusement parks were located just off of the, the boardwalk. And you can imagine how there were multiple piers yeah. uh, uh-huh. just like that one there. So, and, and it was a time when people would arrive in Coney Island still by boat. Tom, this has been an epic day. We've epic. Re- and we're now, of course... Where can you, you have to end the day at Coney Islands at one of the most famous drinking establishments along the boardwalk, 
Rubies, named for Ruby Jacobs, who operated this bar for many decades. It was originally the Hebrew National Deli and Bar in 1934, and he purchased it in 1972 and named it after himself. And needless to say, it is an institution, and in a way, it takes us full circle. Do you know why, Tom? Well, let me guess, because you and I are sitting here on the boardwalk at a bright red table under a red umbrella. Ruby's is open behind you, and I see another boardwalk (laughs) inside, but hanging from the ceiling. Yes, you are literally under the boardwalk when you order a drink. For they use old boardwalk wood to kind of craft a, a kind of whimsical boardwalk that they hang on the ceiling. Although we don't know if that's the original boardwalk. Well, it is a version, some wood of some from some era. But Tom, it's getting kind of loud here. An aspect of rubies that I actually normally like, but not when we're recording a show. So why don't we just like pick it up for the end here and walk along the boardwalk? We'd just like to say thank you for spending the day with us in Coney Island. <laughs> yes. We hope that we were able to share the joy and the fun that we've had and the extraordinary history and why Coney Island is so important to New York City itself. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. Because of you and your small monthly contributions, we're able to spend so much time researching and, uh, shall we say, experiencing our subjects (laughs) like we are today. So thanks for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.